created everything out of nothing literal days would actually meet face to face with another man thousands of years removed from adam thousands of years removed from the fall 20 generations after um, the destruction and despair uh, from the fall to the present god would come again abram sarai his wife we find in chapter 17 after 30 years from first hearing the call out of Ur of the Chaldees. Can you imagine 30 years, guys and gals, living in a tent, gathering in a fifth wheel from place to place? 30 years Abram and his family had traversed from known civilization where there were rote laws and uh, walled cities and safety and protection. There was familial values and monetary good and community. And they left the safety and security of Ur and traversed down into Canaan where God promised to give them a land that they did not yet have. In fact, as we discussed in chapter 15, 10 years into the journey, God would promise them something extraordinary. A people, a heritage, a reward, a progeny, and a prosperity that would be evident to the whole world. And yet, as we see in chapter 16, human ingenuity got in the way. Today, when we look at the text, we are going to find something else highlighted. That genuine faith is demonstrated in genuine obedience. Yes, there was failure and faltering. Human ingenuity was contrasted with genuine faith in the, in the last chapter. And it came from someone that in the narrative we would least expect. It didn't come from our lead character, Abram or Sarai. No, it came from a lowly slave girl who had been conscripted from Egypt, sent away from her home and her family, and given to Sarai. And so we noted last time that that genuine faith was definitely contrasted with human ingenuity. But as we look at the text today, we're going to find that genuine faith will be demonstrated in genuine obedience. And that genuine obedience was showcased in Hagar's life last week. So as we ask and answer the question of the text today, what are the characteristics or what characteristics does the text reveal of genuine faith displayed in expressed obedience? What are characteristics the text reveals of genuine faith that is displayed and expressed obedience? We'll answer that as we look at the text. So think with me and let me introduce the text. Then we're going to read the text and I'm going to give you four anchoring uh, characteristics of the text that are applicable for us today. So today the narrative returns to Abram and Sarai's faith journey, as I mentioned above. More than 30 years in the making from the time of leaving Ur, from the time of wandering in the promised land. Chapter 17 is technically the center chapter of the Abrahamic narrative in Genesis. In fact, chapters 12 through 22 is, um, is really sort of the full breadth of it. Then Abram is mentioned again in chapter 25, but really the central part of Abram's story is Genesis 17. And Genesis 17, in this narr uh, narrative, the center of this chapter highlights something very important to all who heed the call to faith in the God who promises. Because remember last time, that 
was what Hagar heeded. She had faith in the God who promises, not in faith, not just simply faith in promises, but faith in the God who promises. And what we find here is in the center of this chapter, chapter 17 highlights something very important. It highlights the imputed righteousness that we receive when we place our faith in God's way of deliverance and not our own human ingenuity. That will cost us obedience. We'll see obedience ratified in chapter 17 and deepened throughout Abram's story, moving into chapter 18 and following. So as we think of that in the text today, we are going to see that God blesses faith expressed in obedience. So I've introduced the story. I've given you the questions we're going to ask about the story, and I've given you the kernel of truth that we're going to mention throughout the story. God blesses faith expressed in obedience. I don't want to just for a moment back up again and remind us where Genesis 15 brought us the height of soaring faith, chapter 16 showcased just how much sin destroys. While chapter 16 was 10 years into Abram and Sarai's journey, chapter 17 finds them 23 years into wilderness wandering. And so last time we were together, we noted two contrasted realities existing in the story, that of genuine faith versus human ingenuity. So we asked the question last week, what characteristics of the contrasted realities of human ingenuity versus genuine faith does the text present? Human ingenuity, genuine faith, contrasted. What are the characteristics? We found the answer to show us two of them. And so we noted that gen human ingenuity evades God's promises and breeds hopelessness. Because we are not sovereign, nor do we have perfect foresight, no matter how hard we try to manipulate our circumstances to get our best outcome, live your best life now. No matter how hard we try, we will utterly fall. In Abram and Sarai's case, their human ingenuity brought leadership passivity, brought, brought uh, unfiltered assertiveness, and human collateral damage. That's how chapter 16 showcases this radical difference between human ingenuity versus God's true, genuine faith. The failure of our human ingenuity always breeds hopelessness for us and suffering to others. The final contrasting characteristic we saw last week was that of genuine faith in the God who promises, and that always brings grace and blessing. Hagar's situation was dire, but she made it into God's record book because she demonstrated humility in the midst of injustice. That humility in the midst of her injustice led her to hope that recognized God's character, which produced faith that obeyed God's request, even in the midst of certain hardship. Remember that last week as we ended chapter 16? Hagar's genuine faith in God stands as an example to all of us who are not of the physical seed of Abraham. What a joy. Another uh, woman of stature, a woman of faith highlighted in the Old Testament. And as I mentioned last time, Hagar is uh, in a series of women that are living in a circumstance, in a situation culturally where they are denigrated, where they are put down, where they are the lower class citizen. And yet God elevates her because she has faith in him. Friends, we are far more like Hagar in chapter 16 than I think we ought to be like Abram and Sarai in that chapter. 
In fact, she gets the illustrious reality that she is the only character in Scripture to give God a name, to name God. God showcases his name throughout Scripture, but she gets to name him the God who sees, and she named him the God who sees at the place where the living one sees me. What a beautiful story. What a terrible human tragedy. Here was a young woman who faced incredible injustice, and yet God, the angel of the Lord, comes to her and presents her with a promise. I will bless you because your faith is in me, not in my promise. And so genuine faith follows the God who sees even when what we see is a dead end. That's what we learned last time. And so, as we look at today's narrative, I want to remind you, and, and probably the best quote I can give, uh, Derek Kidner in his commentary on Genesis and Induction and Commentary in Volume 1, he says this, as he's comparing the main message of chapters 15 and 17. Because in chapter 15, we have Abram soaring in faith. Chapter 16, we have Abram and Sarai plummeting to human ingenuity and leaving a wake of hopelessness and despair. But in chapter 17, enter the main characters again, and God bringing a promise again, and a covenant contrasting again. And, and so what, what do we see? What is this distinction that we see? And I, I like what Kidner says, and I quote, the two stages of covenant making in chapter 15 and 17 not only tested Abram's faith, by the long delay, but brought out two sides of the one transaction. The earlier chapter, that's chapter 15, fixed the basic pattern of grace and answering faith. Nothing was asked of Abram to believe, but to believe and to know of a surety. Now emerged the implications in depth and extension. In depth, for faith must show itself in utter dedication. In extension, for the whole company must be sealed one by one down to the generations. Together, the two chapters set out the personal and corporate participation, the inward faith and the outward seal. Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 4, by the way. Imputed righteousness and expressed devotion. Through the text today, we will see that God blesses faith expressed in obedience. And so let me, let me say this. I'm going to launch into this, and then we're going to highlight in four categorical statements the, the characteristics that we see that God blesses through obedience. When we look at the text, and this is the geek out moment for those of you who like me giving you the, the, the deeper dive into the Hebrew, okay? This is the geek out moment. So I'm forewarning you don't gloss over, don't check out. Chapter 17 is, um, it introduces something radical. It introduces a new name of God. In fact, there are four names that are mentioned in this chapter that we'll see, and I'll talk about them later. But the name of God in, in that God introduces himself in a specific way becomes really important to this covenant that is promised. Remember chapter 15, God says, I will bless you and I'm going to make a covenant with you. And he essentially puts Abram to sleep and he, he makes this covenant himself, with himself, based on himself. But he chooses to bless Abram 
because of the covenant he based, God based on himself. Well, here, God is going to introduce another aspect or an expressive aspect that Abram must cling to. And that expressive aspect is an aspect of obedience and an external sign of an internal covenant change. And that's what we're going to talk about. So here's the geek out moment. Chapter 17 is, forms a chiasm. It's chiastic in its writing. We understand, I've told you before, that's based on the Greek letter chi. It's, a, it's an X. It looks like an English X. And it, it basically means that the main outline or, or the story introduces a point at the top, and it ends with the same point at the bottom. And it drives you to the main section of the chapter, which is the main point of the text. Okay, and what we find it, when we look at this um, in chapter 17, look at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. See that, verse 1? Look at verse 27. Um, excuse me, uh, look at verse 24. Then Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. So the text is chiastic. It starts and begins with the same comment, okay? And it, it's meant, it's designed this way to drive us to the point of the text. So here's what I want to do. I'm telling you the point of the text is this. God blesses faith expressed in obedience, but I want you to see how I got there from the text. So let's read the text together. It's 27 verses, so hang in there. In fact, it's, as I tell you all the time, the, probably the most important thing I'm going to say today because it's what God says and it's not what I'm saying, okay? So let's read the text together. See if you can see how the text sort of drives you to a central point and then reiterates each point backwards as it comes along and then ends in the same way it started. That is the chiastic point. That is the narrator's way of saying, Here's the central focus of the story, okay? This differs a bit from chapter 15, but it's also the same as chapter 15. So let's look. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord, this is L-O-R-D, all caps, so this is Yahweh, Jehovah, the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham for I have made you a father of many nations. They pause there and say, hallelujah, we can start saying Abraham because I've been messing it up for two months now. <laughs> uh, back to the text. Verse six, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you nations of you. I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, so far, I hope if you're a Bible highlighter, highlighter you have noted 
Words that are repetitive. How about the word covenant? How about God referring to himself personally? I, I, I. I will make. I will do. I will cause. I will give. I will grant. Okay? You noting this? Look at verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, this is the central verse, you shall keep my covenant and your descendants after you throughout their generations. What is this covenant, you ask? Good question. Look at verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or brought with, bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant." And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Looking at a lot of heavy, quiet thinkers. Good, you're thinking deeply on this one. Don't worry, I'll explain it. I think the text explains it too. Verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Hallelujah. I can say Sarah now too. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abram fell on his face. Did we see this happen once before? See the chiasm here? It's starting to work backwards now. He fell on his face, and he laughed, and he said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Let me just pause for a second. How old was Abram before he was named Abraham in the very beginning? Is he not thinking now about God's promise? Is he not thinking about human practicality? How long is a gestational period for a normal human? About nine, nine months, right? How long is a lady pregnant? Okay, let me put it in plain English. Approximately nine months. You don't like gestational period, huh? <laughs> Pregnancy, it's nine months. Long enough, right? right? About nine months. So he's thinking, I'm 99. How on earth will I have a baby at 100? Okay, keep going. Because by the way, a lot of people are like, oh, he, you know, this is, this is a Bible inaccuracy. He's 99, he's 100. What, what? This is a discrepancy. Not a discrepancy. He's using his brain. He's doing math. Anyway, keep going. Uh, and Abram says to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And we might be tempted here for a moment to panic. Um, where did chapter 16 end? Chapter 16 ended with clarity. Ishmael is not going to be your heir, though I will make of him a great nation. He'll have 12 princes that will come from him, but he's not to be your heir. And here Abram's like, um, what about Ishmael, God? Uh, You know, a hundred-year-old is kind of (laughs) old. And God says, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, or Isaac. 
Isaac sounds better. Itzhak is cool too, but I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. By the way, you know what Isaac means? Laughter. All right. Verse 20. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. Here we go with that covenant language again, verse 21. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Wow, even told him when her due date was going to be. Isn't that kind of nice? Wouldn't that be nice, ladies? You know, God said, you're going to be due on this day, a year from now. Like, easy to plan the calendar. Get the nursery ready. No big deal, right? No worries. This good water's going to break early. No, no worries. You're going to have a premature baby. Nope, on this day, it's going to happen. Well, Sarah got her wish. Then he finished talking with, with him, and God went up from Abraham. Verse 23. So, Abraham took Ishmael, his son, all who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abram's house. By the way, does that meet the requirements that God said in verses 10 through 15? You see, did you mark all, 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 everyone bought, everyone born, all of them? It does. And he circumcised them, the flesh of their foreskin, that very same day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. May the Lord add a blessing and understanding to the reading of his word today. So as we look at this text, maybe you're asking the question that I pose to you, how on earth today do we see that God blesses faith expressed in obedience? Well, I hope that's an easy answer. Well, let's first of all take a look at the characteristics that the text reveals of genuine faith displayed in expressed obedience. Uh, first, we're going to see that genuine faith is rooted in God's character and promise in verses 1 to 2. Now, with that being said, let me just remind you of what I just said. Remember what Derek Kidner said in his commentary as he was contrasting chapters 15 to 17. That both of these two chapters taken together set out the personal and the corporate participation of God's people. They show the inward faith and an outward seal of that inward faith. They show imputed righteousness with expressed devotion. So what, what, what we're actually saying here is what this covenant is is not just an outward action. It is an outward action. It is an outward action that identifies God's people as unique and separate from the, the uh, foreigners around them, okay? But, as we're going to get to in a little bit throughout the text, it is not the outward act of circumcision that does something for them. What has already happened in chapter 15? God has already declared Abram to be righteous. He's already imputed or given him an external righteousness. Why? Because he believed God. What happened in chapter 16? His faith faltered. 
Yeah, he was still believing in God, but he added his own human ingenuity to the mix, and so did Sarai, his wife, and everything went downhill from there. And for 13 more years now, Hagar and Ishmael have been suffering under the condemnation of Sarai and the compassion of Abram, who has lived a passive leader life. And they've been in a situation of difficulty and challenge and hardship, yet their faith is growing and fostering as well. And so genuine faith is rooted in God's character and promise. This is a characteristic that the text shows uh, where God blesses faith expressed in obedience. So genuine faith is rooted in God's character and promise. Look at verses 1 to 2 as we saw it. Abram was 99 years old. God appears to him and he says, I'm almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. You see, here God reveals another one of his names to Abram. This is, by the way, the very first usage of this name in all of the Bible, of course, and in the book of Genesis. In fact, its occurrences throughout the rest of Genesis are actually surrounding God's covenant promise of blessing to Abram and his descendants. It's to Abram repeatedly, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, and from Joseph to his descendants. Listen, what does God mean by this? If, if genuine faith is rooted in God's character and promise, the narrative is showcasing Abram needed genuine faith in God's character and his promise. And that genuine faith must be expressed in obedience. And so as we look at this, what does God preface this command with? His name. So as I preface this reality for us today, we must recognize that God is almighty. God's promises are enacted and his grace and mercy are enforced based on his sovereignty and his goodness. When you and I are in difficult times, we are meant to cling to God almighty instead of clinging to our own human ingenuity, like we saw in chapter 16. We are to cling to God Almighty. When you're faced with a seemingly impossible task, do you trust God Almighty, or do you trust in the arm of your flesh? Here, Abram is being confronted. You just think about this for, for a, a while. It's been 13 years since Abram heard from God. Abram failed God abysmally. Hagar and Ishmael have been suffering. Sarai is at odds with Hagar and Ishmael. Sarai wants nothing to do with Ishmael and wants her uh, handmaiden Hagar and her son Ishmael out of the house. She doesn't name him, she doesn't claim him, and she doesn't talk to him. Yet God comes and introduces himself as Almighty. This promise was not just to Abram, but there, as you noted, this promise was also to Ishmael as well and to Hagar as his mother. You see, friends, no matter where you are in your journey of faith, God expects your faith to be demonstrated in your obedience to his sovereign plan. No matter where you and I are in the process of human suffering, we, we live in a world of, that's sin-cursed, and there's sinners all around us, and we are sinners ourselves. Not only do we get hurt, but we hurt others. And here God is coming to Abram, and he's introducing himself as the Almighty, El Shaddai, the Master, the Maker, the Sovereign, the King. There is nothing that goes beyond his 
all-seeing presence, as Hagar taught us in chapter 16. There is nothing that goes beyond his all-knowing control. And there is nothing that will usurp his all-powerful plan. And friends, when you and I drop the act of self-reliance and human ingenuity, and we begin like Abram to fall before God face down in humility, we understand that the Almighty has us in his hands. Jesus said it this way, I and my Father are one. You are in my Father's hand. You are in my hand. No one can pluck you out of my Father's hand and my hand. Jesus' half-brother Jude said it this way in closing his short epistle. He, Jesus, is able to present you faultless before the throne of God. You see, our security is not in our human ingenuity. Our security is not in uh, how we manipulate our present circumstances so that our future is happy and go lucky and bright and shiny. No, our security is in God Almighty. And friends, the sooner we lower our guard and we let God Almighty, Almighty God, rule and reign in our hearts, the sooner we will get to the, the point that God blesses faith expressed in obedience. Genuine faith is rooted in God's character and his promise. Now, think about this one, and I'm going to move on. Abram understands his genealogy. It is not lost on Abram that he is 20th from Adam, or that he is uh, the descendant of Shem, or that he is part of that seed that will crush the serpent's head. And yet, Abram has utterly and abysmally failed in his obedience to God by allowing human ingenuity to interrupt God's promise and God's plan. And now there's collateral damage and there's human suffering. And God is coming back to him and saying, look, I will bless your faith as your faith is expressed in obedience. Can I say it this way and then I'm going to move on? Jesus said there are two identifiers of every Christian. And I would, I would say, based on what I argued last week from uh, Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapter 3, and James chapter 2, that Abram or Abraham is considered the father of our faith, not because we are his physical descendants, we're of the, quote, circumcision, but because we are his spiritual descendants, because he was given the promise in chapter 15, 13 years before he was told to take the external sign of the covenant relationship. So God was saying something more than just this physical thing has to happen. He's saying there's a spiritual change or transfer that's going to happen. And that is demonstrated when you and I obey. And so Jesus said there are two hallmarks of every follower of his. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Are you ready? If you love one another and if you keep my commandments. Love and obedience. And I would, I would say that you and I really can't have one without the other. We can't truly obey God and despise others. 
I, I don't think that it, at any church can be a healthy church that says, we teach sound doctrine, we commit to the fundamentals of the faith, but then use the, the sound doctrine, the fundamentals of the faith to bludgeon their brother and sister. There cannot be disunity and sound doctrine. It's unloving. Jesus said, love identifies as well as obedience. On the flip side, you can't just love everybody and get along if you don't have agreeance on what love really is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We're sinners. Without God interfering, we would be lost, separated from him for all eternity, doomed to a Christless, uh, hopeless uh, time of punishment in hell and ultimately in the lake of fire. That is what we deserve, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And friends, all of us are sinners, and every sin deserves punishment. Revelation 7.11 even tells us that all liars. And we, we, lo we love to jump on the, you know, the effeminate, the abusers of mankind, you know, those who identify in these, quote, grotesque sins. But it says all liars. Have you ever lied? I sure have. Apart from the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, we are doomed to destruction. But God blesses genuine faith that obeys and that genuine faith is expressed in God's character and promises. When we place our faith in the character of the Almighty, we are placing our faith in an unshakable, unwavering, eternal God who will never leave or forsake us. That was a pathetic amen. I won't tell you to say it louder, but how about a better one next time? How's that? Thank you, thank you, thank you, yeah. You see, friends, genuine faith responds to God in his character and his promise. Do you believe God is El Shaddai? Do you believe God is mighty? Amen. Then why do we accept the pittance this world has to offer? Why do we pursue the, the fleshly human ideals that we think are going to make us happy? Abram tried it. Sarai tried it, and look at the wake of hurt that it left behind. Oh, friends, some of us, this generation is an experiential generation. Can I tell you there's a lot of experiences in the Bible that if we'll listen to the experiences, we won't have to go through them ourselves. That's what they're there for. That's why, do you know, 70% of the Bible is narrative? It's so we can hear other people's stories so we don't have to do the same stupid thing over and over again that they did. And by the way, it was stupid for Abram to say, yeah, I'll take Hagar. That was dumb. Yeah, and I, I don't mind telling Abram that when I get to heaven. And I'm sure he'd be like, oh, um, by the way, I got a whole long list of things you did, by the way, Ryan. Like, yeah, yeah, you're right. That was dumb. So as we look at this reality, friends, God's almighty power and presence will determine, uh, and when we place our faith in him, um, it will determine our direction. The second characteristic that we're going to see in the text today is that genuine faith responds in humility and obedience. 
Genuine faith responds in humility and obedience. So what do we find Abram doing in verse 13 and 17? He falls on his face. Now, literally, we don't have to, you know, come before God on our face. But how many of you have ever, ever done that? Have you ever prayed on your face before? I have. There have been plenty of times where I felt, I felt so miserable about my sin or so distraught about my circumstances that I just laid flat my face in front of God and I said, God, I need your help. That's what Abram does here. He humbles himself. He hasn't heard the voice of the Lord in 13 years, and he humbles himself before Almighty God. God Almighty helps him grow his faith. Genuine faith responds in humility and obedience. Abram, in our text, when he falls on his face before God, is showcasing his humility. It does seem later on in verse 17 that he falters when he laughs. He obviously does not falter in his faith, just in his understanding of faith's fruit. In other words, how God would bring this to pass. So the text emphasizes a covenant between God and Abram with an outward sign that must be enacted personally and corporately. So genuine faith responds in humility and obedience. He listens to God. He responds to God in humility and prepares himself for the obedience that is to follow. Uh, in verse 17, like I said, he does laugh. In chapter 18, which I'm going to get to next time, in chapter 18, we find out that that laughter also is something that Sarah participates in. But she is reprimanded for it. Abram is, Abraham is not reprimand, reprimanded here in the text. And I think it's because Abraham believes God, but he just he, his, his, his sphere is limited when he sees how God can accomplish this. And we, the text reminds us, um, I'm 100. Uh, Sarah's 90. Uh, I just don't see it. I believe you. It's going to be hilarious. <laughs> great grandma and great grandpa walking down the road with their nursing baby. I mean, I think this is what he's thinking. He's laughing like, you know, I mean, this is what he's laughing about. And, and so it, it's kind of like this. When God commands us to obey, sometimes those things that he asks us to do seem to be hilarious because we can't understand the outcome because we're limited in our understanding of God's ability. That's why God introduces himself as almighty. The only way I can, I can illustrate this, and sadly, I don't know if this is even going to be a helpful illustration because there's not a single person in this room that has known me since I was a kid, as I look around. <laughs> um, but I'll give this illustration anyway. If you knew me as a kid, you never, ever, in your wildest imaginations, would have seen me behind a pulpit preaching to a group of people. Ever. I might have been in a stand-up comedy club because of my antics, but not behind a pulpit. And that, by the way, wasn't because I'm funny. That's the funny one in the family. Ben, yeah, he's looking around. See, <laughs> funny. No, when, when God called me into the ministry, I remember thinking, okay, um, I need to be willing to do this because God is speaking. I have no idea how, this, how on earth this is going to happen or what this is going to look like. So maybe that illustration can help you. Sometimes God asks us to do things in obedience to him that we don't know, that we can do. But by the grace of God and the mercy of God, 
we can. So let me illustrate it this way. And I, I'm sorry to take it down. I don't mean to take it down, but I think it's appropriate to chapter 16. Chapter 16, the angel of the Lord sends Hagar with her son back to, dare I say, an abusive situation. Yeah, I went there. Now, I, there's, no, there's no evidence in the text that Hagar was continued, continually abused there physically. But definitely there's a clear emotional abuse that happened leading up to this, and even probably a physical abuse leading up to her fleeing Sarai, her mistress, right? But God says, the angel of the Lord says, go back. She has spent 13 years in a situation where the person that's her boss doesn't like her. In fact, hates her guts. And she's spent 13 years with the man who she birthed the child for, only being able to show a little bit of compassion and sympathy and not really acting like a true husband or a father should. Now, let me bring it to 2023. I have no idea what you've suffered in your life, and I don't presume to know. Some of you have told me your story, and your stories have made me weep. I can't imagine what you have endured. But can I tell you, God knows. He loves you, and he'll never leave you or forsake you. And when you walk by faith in the God who is El Shaddai, who is almighty, and you humble yourself and you choose to obey, even when you do not see what God sees, your scope and sphere of vision is so small that you're like, mm, I'm 100 years old, that is not going to happen, right? I, I have parents that I didn't choose or, or I don't have parents because I'm an orphan or you fill in the blank. I have a, a, a dead-end job or a boss that, that's hurt me or a, a relative that abused me and, and nobody knows or the legal system got involved but the case was dropped. You fill in the blank. I've heard everything, every one of those stories over and over and over and over. But guess what? God knows and he's almighty. God calls us to obey. God calls us to place our faith and trust in him. God calls us to humbly obey him, knowing that he will set all things right, that he will bring all things to an end, and that he will get the glory, and he will vindicate the righteous. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe this I will? Whosoever will or whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you believe that? Of course you do. You've called on the name of the Lord. You've experienced his love. You've been washed by his mercy and grace. You've had that glorious exchange of your sin nature given, uh, replaced with the righteousness of Christ. You experience the Holy Spirit in your heart and your life, and you know the joy of being his child. Well, then why don't you believe it when God says, I will repay. Why do you try to repay? Why do you try to get back? Why do you try to render evil for evil? Why do you try to step in and play God? Do you believe God is El Shaddai? Do you believe he's almighty? Friends, you know, I'm preaching. I'm saying you, but I'm saying you. I'm saying you. <laughs> All of my fingers. You've, are you tracking with me? Don't for a moment think that I'm not sitting right there in front of Jill listening to me preach. 
Genuine faith responds in humility and obedience. And some of you need to let Almighty deal with the problems in your life and stop acting like the Almighty in charge of your life. Now, let's take a look at the third character trait that we find. Genuine faith receives a new identity, and this is beautiful. I love it that it's in this process. God introduces himself to Abraham as the Almighty, uh, so that Abram's faith is rooted in character, the God character, God's character and God's promise. Abram responds in humility and obedience, and it's at this point that God promises, I'm going to give you a new name. And by the way, in the ancient cultures, that new name, that name always represented a character. Okay, so, so it would be kind of like this. Abram's name meant exalted father. Okay, so when people were calling him Abram, they were actually calling him exalted father. But it had a, it had a clear reference to his God, who was his father. So the, the inference was exalted father was God the father. Okay? But God chooses to name him father of a multitude or father of many nations. Goyim is the Hebrew word. So it'd be like, it'd be like this. Um, my, my son and daughter call me a title. Elizabeth calls me daddy. I still love that. Ben calls me dad. Daddy-o sometimes calls me daddy-o. Um, Jen calls me Ryan because that's my name. Apparently, Ryan is Irish. Don't ask me why. My mom, who is Italian, married to an Italian, gave me an Irish name, but whatever. Apparently, Ryan means little king. Okay, In Gaelic, it means little king. The name Abram, so it'd be like walking up to saying, hey, little king. People were walking up to Abram and saying, hey, exalted father. Hey, exalted father. How's it going, exalted father? Hey, uh, exalted father, I took the sheep out uh, and watered them. Um, <laughs> I, I know it sounds funny, but that, I'm making a point, right? Hey, exalted father, uh, the, the, the shepherds are arguing with Lot right now about the well that we just dug. And uh, what should we do about it, exalted father? You should go dig another well, right? You, you remember all these things that happened? Now, from here on out, they don't get to call him exalted father. They come up and say, uh, hey, father of many nations. <laughs> and they laugh just like he laughed. They're walking up to a hundred-year-old wrinkly man and saying, father of many nations, and he has no kid of his own. I, there's, this is supposed to be funny, okay, people? Again, I'm not funny. I get that. If Ben said that, everybody would laugh. This place would be rolling with laughter. I get it. Holy laughter. No, not that. No, I'm... The <laughs> Thank you. No, the point I'm making is this. Genuine faith receives a new identity Abraham was called the exalted father because God was going to, uh, because God was exalted in his life, but now he's changed to the father of many nations because God is going to do something through Abraham that is going to bring uh, exaltation to God for his glory and will save the nations. He is the father of Goyim, Goyim, the many nations, because he is going to be the seed through whom God will raise up the king of kings named Yeshua, Jesus the Christ. Friends, God renames Abraham. Why? Because he believes him. He believes his character. He believes his promises. He humbles himself and he obeys. Christian, did you know that God tells us when we were born again, 
We're given a new identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Behold, all old things have passed away. All things are becoming new. You are a new creation in Christ. One day God himself will also give us a new name. Isaiah 62.2, Revelation 2.17, and Revelation 3.12 tells us that God will give you a new name. No longer will I be called little king. I don't know what I'll be called, but the fact that Jesus will say my name is all that matters to me. Friends, you and I have been given a new identity, a new name. Now, I told you there were four names in the text, right? El Shaddai is the first one. Abraham gets the second one. His name is father of many nations now. And then Sarai, her name is transitioned to Sarah. It's actually a derivation of the exact same name, and it means the exact same thing. But this time, when God gives her a new identity, the text tells us that he is going to birth from her kings and princes. How many uh, children does Sarai, or Sarah have? One. She has laughter. That's who she has. Because apparently, father of many nations and princess birthed laughter. Because she was 100 and he was 90. That, that, that's, that's the reality. That's exactly what the text is saying. Father of many nations and princess birthed laughter at 190. 100 for one of them and 90 for the other. Isn't that funny? Isn't that beautiful? God renames us. God renames them. And then, of course, I mentioned Isaac's name is Laughter. And uh, how, by the way, how would you like that name? Hey, Laughter, what's up, man? Got a good joke? Good, got a good dad joke for me today? Well, actually, I do, right? Uh, I mean, that, that would be, that is unique, that his name is Laughter. But he no doubt brought joy and laughter to his mom and dad. Because father of many nations and princess spent the rest of their days laughing at God's goodness. Friends, is El Shaddai able to break through your darkest night? To set your heart on fire with a hope that you have an expected end and a future beyond your reckoning? That God's goodness is greater than your eye has ever seen or your ear has ever heard, and it not, hasn't even entered in, in your thoughts or imaginations of the things that God has prepared for you, maybe our names ought to be changed to laughter too. Because God is good. Even when stuff is bad, God is good. God gives a new name. Genuine faith receives a new identity. I have more to say, but I, I'll skip it for sake of time. Finally, we'll see that genuine faith is offered collectively. Now hang with me on this one. Genuine faith is offered collectively. So I want to explain this. As we mentioned in the beginning, the outward sign of the covenant between God and Abram was to be circumcised. That sign was to be applied to every male in the community. It was an outward seal as an expression of God's external righteousness applied to us or to them and displayed in outward service. God's people were to be identified with an outward service based on an inward righteousness. Even Ishmael was given this sign, even though he's not part of the covenant. He goes on to father 12 princes. He goes on to have many nations, but he is not part of the seed of Jesus. Now, he has been given the outward sign, and he has been offered the relationship with Almighty, 
with the Almighty God. And so uh, just like the, the ethnos, the, the Gentiles, the other nations, Ishmael has the opportunity to have a personal relationship with the God who loves him and knows him and named him. Today, God promises to build his church, right? Hmm, I think I deleted one of my slides. It's okay. God promises to build his church. That's us. Today, God promises to build his church. John says, or Jesus says in John 15, that he is the vine and we are the branches. We're attached to him. Just as we are members of the vine as branches flowing from it, so when we enter a relationship with God, we become members of one another. That outward sign of an inward relationship is expressed in corporate gatherings and church membership today. Our genuine faith in Jesus drives us to display it collectively as a member of his local church. Nobody, did you notice in verse 14? Um, nobody, nobody in that community was allowed to stay in the community without, no male without receiving that outward sign. And so as we look, um, notice in verse 14 it says, and the uncircumcised male child uh, who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people because he has broken my covenant. This outward sign was to represent the inward relationship of God's people they had with God himself. One commentator, uh, R. Kent Hughes, puts it this way, and I quote, early on, circumcision came to symbolize the spiritual commitment of one's life to God. Moses wrote, and the Lord, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that the Lord your God will... Uh, circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all that you may live, with all your soul. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. I really botched that. Let me read that again. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. It's because it's on a page break here in my iPad. And the Lord your God will, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. So what was he saying? And by the way, this Deuteronomy was written to Israel by Moses in the wilderness under the signing of the ratification of the law. Genesis was written by Moses in the wilderness to the children of Israel as given by God, recounting the original calling of God's people to circumcise their flesh. But in Deuteronomy chapter 3 and Deuteronomy chapter 30, God says you need a circumcised heart, not just an outward sign, but a real inward change. By the way, Jeremiah challenged the people, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, in Jeremiah 4.4. 4. And so, as a sign, circumcision function, much as, much as a wedding ring symbolizes commitment. The external sign signified a whole life commitment, but unlike a wedding ring, circumcision, circumcision could not be cast aside. It was permanent. It was ineradicable. It would bear terrible, unremitting witness against a sinful, consecrated heart. Christian, God has circumcised your heart and given you a new name and a new nature. He expects you to identify with his spiritual community connected together by Jesus through faith alone. And so, we must obey God's command. God expects us to identify with his spiritual community. 
connected together by Jesus through faith alone. We must obey God's command in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You see, God blesses faith expressed in obedience. If you are a member of the body of Christ, that is, you've placed your faith in Christ alone, by faith alone, because of his grace and mercy alone, then you've come to faith in Christ and you've had your sins forgiven and you've forsaken the old way and you've been given a new name and a new nature and you trust in El Shaddai, the almighty God, who's provided the one and only way for your eternal escape from sin. And you are a member of the community of faith. But God says that this community showcases itself locally. It's a real group of real people with real needs where we showcase love for one another and obedience to God's commands. And I know we live in a society with the megachurch model where last night somebody from Central Phoenix preached a message that got recorded and it got podcast out to about 35,000 members in about 8,000 campuses all across the valley. But that guy who preached that message doesn't know any of them by name. And they, they don't really have a membership. There's no accountability, no connectivity, no tithing, no giving, no, no functional worship together, no bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ, no fulfilling the 42 one another's that are listed in the New Testament, no collection for the needs of the people, no presentation of uh, unified in purpose and direction, no united identity in Jesus. You see, God manifests the local church as his body, and he expects us as local members of one another to be connected. And this outward sign of circumcision was a clear connection to the community. Hey, guess what? We have a circumcised heart when we come to faith in Jesus. And when we become members of a local church, we get connected to the local body and we showcase through our obedience I'm a changed person from the inside. You can't see my insides, praise God. But my inside has been changed by Jesus Christ. And now I want to connect on the outside with all these other people that have been changed by Jesus. Do you see that? Do you see that connection? Without a circumcised heart, you don't belong to the family of faith. Did you see verse uh, 7 or 14 in our text? What I said, what I read earlier? And the uncircumcised male child is not circumcised in the flesh and the foreskin. That person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. He's cut off. If you and I don't have a transformed heart by Jesus, we are cut off. We're not part of the body. What is the, one of the easiest ways we can manifest connection to the body? Connecting to a local church. Now, I'm not going to say that, uh, that Moses had church membership in mind when he said this. In fact, God is the one who instituted it. But I truly believe, because Paul utilizes it in Romans 4, in Galatians 3, and James uses it when he says, show me my, your works and I'll show you my, show me your faith and I'll show you my faith by my works. The whole emphasis of the New Testament about connectedness to a local body of Christ is that idea of membership. We are members one to another and to fulfill the ordinances and the commands of God, we need to be connected to a local church. And I think this is a clear opportunity to showcase that. So I, I have some questions for you in conclusion because we've seen today that characteristics that reveal 
genuine faith displayed in obedience. First, genuine faith is rooted in God's character and promise. Second, genuine faith is rooted in, in uh, responds in humility and obedience. Third, genuine faith receives a new identity. And finally, genuine faith is offered collectively. We become a part of a collective group of people. So let me ask you this question. Are you clinging to God's character and promises? Is that your display of active faith? And, and by the way, if you aren't or you're struggling, let us help you. That's what the body of Christ is for, right? We're to bear one another's burdens and so help fulfill the law of Christ. That's what Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 4, in the, or chapter 6, excuse me, in chapter 6. But he prefaced it by saying, hey, brothers and sisters, if you see a brother that's overtaken in a fall, you spiritual ones, restore them in meekness and fear, lest you also be tempted. You know what that means? If you're struggling to cling to God and his character and his promises, we're here to help you not put you down, not cast judgment or despair in you. We're here to help. We're here to bear your burden. We're here to encourage you and to exhort you. That's what, we're, that's what it's for. Are you humbly obeying him no matter what your present circumstances are? Hey, I don't know what you're experiencing now. I don't know what trials or trauma or tribulation that you're under, but God does. And if you are humbly obeying him no matter what your present circumstances are, then you are in on a great team and a great community of people that are just sinners saved by grace, just like you. Will you humbly obey him no matter what your present circumstances are? Do you understand that as a believer in God, you have a new identity? Don't live old nature, old ways. Don't fail to connect to God and, and identify with him as El Shaddai, as provider, as protector, as maker. Remember, you have a new name. Are you accepting that identity with all of its implications? And then finally, are you connected and connecting to God's local community of faith? God wants you to express your faith in obedience. And God will bless it when you do. May God help us to do so. Father, we thank you for the word of God and for its power.